0: Hi, my name is Brian Kiley and I'm the Director of Discipleship at Bridgeway Christian Church. I want to thank you for watching Healing an Ethnically Wounded Nation, part of the Faith and Culture series at Bridgeway Christian Church. I want to give you just a little bit of introductory material that will help you as you engage with this content. First of all, I want to briefly explain the title. I think most all of us would agree that there is significant wounding around ethnic issues in the United States today. Uh, We have been wounded and divided as a nation in so many different ways. Uh, We've chosen the word ethnically as opposed to racially, and Pastors Lance and Parnell will get into that in a future session. And then ultimately, we've chosen the word healing because part of the purpose of this series is we want to be part of the solution. We want to ask the question, how can we partner with God and what God is doing to, indeed, heal our ethnically wounded nation? A quick word on the format of these sessions. At the beginning, Pastor Lance Hahn and Pastor Parnell Lovelace will teach on some different material. Following that, there will be some short personal testimonies that we're calling Fresh Takes. These fresh takes are from real people in the Sacramento region who have powerful stories to share about their experience dealing with ethnic tension here in the United States. We wanna tell you right from the beginning that some of this material may well be uncomfortable and challenging. It's okay to be uncomfortable as you're listening to this material. We just wanna encourage you to sit in that discomfort and not feel the need to release it right away. We also want to encourage you to reserve judgment and listen deeply. Don't block out what you hear immediately. Allow our different presenters to share everything that they have to share before you make a judgment about what they've said. What is being brought to the table in these sessions is not new. We're not the first to talk about these issues. It might be new to you, but you need to understand that everyone who is presenting comes at a long time line of brilliant people we got asked a lot when we first created this content why are you doing this and the reason why we're doing it is that we believe the church should speak about oppression because advocating for the oppressed is so close to the heart of god another question we want to answer is is what do we as as bridgeway bring to the table what do our presenters bring to the table to this complex and divisive issue we hope to bring five things At number one, we hope to bring some fresh perspective. At number two, we hope to bring clear articulation of the issues involved. Number three, we hope to present you with the research of trusted voices. At number four, we want to give you a concise presentation of complex material. Yes, these sessions are somewhat lengthy, but we've tried to take complex information and put it in as concise a form as possible. And then ultimately, we hope number five, to break this down into understandable concepts. A couple last things to tell you before we get into the teaching is, it's very important that you understand that this is not political. There is no way to talk about these issues without touching on topics that are talked about in the political realm today but we have to be clear that the purpose is to address societal harm and to bring the truth and love of Christ into a bad situation. Our presenters are not presenting from a politically partisan perspective, and we want to encourage you to not allow your own political or politically partisan beliefs to interfere with your ability to listen to the material. Now, some last information for those of you who are processing this material with a group of people. We want to encourage you to not only listen to the presenters, but listen to the people that you're processing this material with. Don't be in a debating posture. Rather, be in a listening and learning posture. We hope that what is presented will stir up fruitful conversation in the groups that you're in, and we hope that it leads to some concrete action. But we just want to set a few simple ground rules that we really recommend to be able to guard the conversations you have and make sure that they are productive. Uh, Number one, listen respectfully without interrupting. Uh, Number two, make sure you're not dominating conversation. Many of us have strong opinions about these issues, but we want to encourage you to keep your comments concise. Number three, be committed to learning and not simply finding debatable issues. This is not about debating, it's about learning and growing together. And number four, lean into the discomfort. Growth comes from discomfort. So when you feel uncomfortable, don't seek to alleviate it right away. Rather, we wanna encourage you to ask the question, what might God be saying to you in the midst of your discomfort? We hope that you enjoy this content, and we thank you once again for engaging with this series, Healing an Ethnically Wounded Nation.
1: Well, hello everyone. Good to see you. We have a lot of material to go through with you. Um, It is very important that... uh, bishop and pastor parnell lovelace is uh standing here along with me that we can do this in conjunction with one another it has been called uh healing an ethnically wounded nation that we are both pastors at heart even though we do an awful lot of research and study and seem to be academics right but we really have a pastor's heart that if someone is wounded or there is something about our nation that is wounded, we have a desire to bring healing into that. I think that that's kind of the mandate that Jesus has given to us. So let me just set the tone for today, for our first portion, and that is our main concern is that something may be very wrong in our nation. There may be some tremendous wounds and hurts that are being caused by what we are going to deem as racism. If racism is the concern, then why don't we just jump in and start defining that? We are actually going to begin with history. You all know me. I'm a big guy about context, right? Everything's about context. Got to get the history, got to get the background so that today makes sense. So for us, racism needs history in order to understand One of the first things that we're trying to address is that for many of you, you hear the idea where we're gonna talk about slavery. And then you would say, really, we're going there again. It's not like I haven't heard that a million times. Why can't we just move on? Unfortunately, there has been kind of a spirit uh, throughout the last couple hundred years of let's just move on. There is a problem with moving on When in fact, not everyone is clear about what has occurred and the trauma continues to happen. It's one thing to say, all right, we can sort it out. You can apologize for what occurred. I can receive that healing and we can move forward. If no one is addressing it fully and completely, and if it's still happening, then it's very difficult to move on. Are you really moving on if it's still occurring? You see, slavery ended a long time ago. The ramifications are still going on today. So the main theme that we're going to be launching off with is looking at history through one lens. One lens primarily. We're going to hear from others, and you're going to find out that racism touches pretty much everybody, right? You're going to find out that personal racism actually impacts every single person in this room. Prejudice, bias, things like that. But what you're also going to learn is that only minority groups can suffer from systemic racism, right? So what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at history through the lens of one particular people group, and that would be African Americans. What you are about to walk into is African American history Kind of in an hour or less, right? So we're gonna go really, really fast. And so we want to begin with a bit of history before America came to be. And the way we're going to do this is that I will be sharing some of the facts and stories. I will then hand over to my partner right here and he will tell you what's really going on, all right? So he can correct whatever I say that is wrong or he can add his own thoughts in there. But I wanna begin. Uh, back with with this thought. Slavery has always existed throughout the history of the world in every culture all over the place, and it has not always been the same. What you're going to hear about American history, or specifically the Atlantic slave passageway trade that led to America, that led to American slavery of African Americans, that is very unique. You may say, oh, I know all about that in the ancient world. Oh, I know all about that. You see, slave comes from Slav, and that was from this people group, and, and, oh, Egyptians did this, and this happened on the continent of Africa. You are correct. People have always dominated and always hurt other people. What we want to narrow down to is how did it get here, and how did it turn out the way it turned out? All right, so let's say this. In 1492 right? Everybody knows this is kind of a little Christopher Columbus era, right? Hey! And we actually have Columbus Day, which, of course, we're not going to get into. 1492, the Portuguese negotiate the first slave trade agreement, and what launches ultimately is the Atlantic slave trade. Initially, it is all through the Caribbean, through the West Indies, and into South America. Here are the statistics it is estimated that 10 to 15 million African males were captured by slave traders for the Atlantic slave trade between the years of 1500 and 1860. Most of those, an estimated, what, 95% ended up going to South America. A huge amount went to South America. Only 5% got over here. But here is a sobering statistic. It is estimated that 40 to 50% of those stolen off the continent died before ever arriving at their destination. It was the capture. It was the initial treatment. It was the travel. It was the seasoning of the slave, which meant beating and torturing in order to make them comply. By the time they arrived at their destination, they began to have babies when they began to bring over women, and the infant mortality rate was 50%. So the amount that has died initially before ever even entering into what we would deem as modern-day slavery is shocking. One last point. When... A lot of times, people of my color, white, a lot of times when we are challenged by this, we fall into a default of frustration of saying, I get it, white people are bad. I've seen all the movies, we hurt the Native Americans, we hurt the African Americans, we hurt the Japanese, we hurt, I get it, we're the bad guys, why is everyone always beating up on us? I hope that by the time we are done with history, at least our lesson for today, that instead of reacting like that and saying, stop talking to me about it, that our compassion kicks in and that we may say, wow, it is very difficult to hear. And then we can say, well, I wasn't responsible for that. But we're gonna eventually let you know that we are responsible for today. And we are certainly, as members of God's family, responsible for addressing the hurt that has occurred. Not just once, but every time someone is hurting. Pastor Parnell.
2: Thanks, Pastor Lance. I want to say that this is an awesome event an opportunity for us to discuss these matters. As most of you know, even in our country today, there there was protesting that was going on in Washington, and uh, we're hitting some hard-hitting issues, some very hard-hitting issues. I think, without any hesitation, I can state that it is my firm belief that one of the challenges that we have faced in this whole discussion when we talk about racism in our culture today, is that our country has yet to fully address the issue of slavery. We have not fully acknowledged and addressed what can be considered one of the most horrendous, evil institutions to take place on this soil. I believe that the conversation has to go, as Pastor has alluded to, it has to go to discussing the issue of slavery. It is not something that can be merely looked at as, well, that was then, this is now. Uh, It was then, and it's still now. It's just a different form, different presentation, but many of the same effects And as has been stated, the trauma is still present. I've shared before, many of you have heard me share this, I am the great-grandson of slaves. My great-grandmother and great-grandfather, both paternal and maternal, were born in slavery. They were set free as children, but they were born in slavery. My my grandfather, some of you are trying to calculate that. How can that be? Because in our minds, we think it's so far back. But my paternal grandfather died in 1982 at the age of 112. And my father is buried next to his grandmother who was a slave. So it is closer to us than we think. So it really is important that we address this key issue because there are, as it is, there are still elements of trauma that impact all of us. But in particular, it is what African American people live with every single day. It's what they experience. Now, some deal with it better than others. We'll talk about that later Mm -hmm. on. There are some that are able to work through that more than others. It's not monolithic. They don't all just think the same way. But we are all traumatized by the effects of, again, I believe, singly, the presentation of slavery within our nation impacted sociologically, but also, as I'll share later on, even physiologically. There is a very real trauma that presents itself. Let me share one quick thought as we go further into this. Dr. Joy DeGruy has written a book called Post Traumatic Slave Syndrome. Post Traumatic Slave Syndrome. Six years of research this woman has done. She lives in this region. I've had an opportunity to sit with her and spend quite a bit of time with her. And one of the conversations that we had in a conversation we had in Tulsa, Oklahoma, we were talking about why is it that when we speak about the African American experience in regards to the injustices that have taken place, that it seems to be a lot of pushback that is very different, very different than many of the other cultures that have also experienced traumatization because of injustice towards them, specifically uh, the Japanese, the Native Americans, those who are indigenous to this nation, uh, the Jewish Holocaust. It is interesting, out of all of those discussions, whenever you're talking about the subject of injustice, and particularly slavery, there, there, there's no pushback when we talk about the injustice towards the Japanese or injustice towards the, in the Jewish Holocaust, but whenever we speak of black Americans, there is a visceral response, an unsettledness. It makes us very, very uncomfortable to talk about 246 years of chattel slavery within this country. And all of us are affected. Blacks and whites are not only affected, but as my friend Dr. DeGroote would say, we're affected and infected. We're all impacted by it. So we have to talk about this subject when we speak of traumatization.
1: Yeah, so how did it really get here, right? If it starts and it goes a lot towards South America, how did it how did it get here? So here is the story. In 1619, that is the year before the Mayflower arrives, right? So if we're going to think about eh, pilgrims early on, this is the year before that. In 1619, the first official African slaves come to America. Now, on paper... African indentured servants arrived in the American colonies, but the exact same year, 20 Africans were stowed away on a Dutch ship forcibly settled as involuntary laborers stolen from the country of Angola. Now, there are some questions about a ship that arrived in 1610, but ultimately we have this as a fact that in 1619, we have the first forced slaves come here. Why are they here? There was a brand new market in a brand new world. It was the idea of money, the ability to have production. The idea was that I would go out and set sail and I would have a new place, I'd make a ton of cash, I'd send it back to my family, or I'd resettle a new life. But when they got here, they realized that the stuff that works best here is labor intensive. They knew full well they were not going to be able to do it themselves. So they wanted a workforce And that is when they started turning their eyes to link with the Atlantic slave trade by the Portuguese and the others. What is intriguing is that right off the bat in 1640, there was a runaway slave situation. There was a black slave named John Punch in 1640 that ran away with two white slaves, a Dutchman and a Scotsman. They all got caught. When they received their punishment, the two white men received four years of extra slavery time. Punch, the black man, received, quote, perpetual servitude. This is the first explicit approval of lifelong slavery. Why was it only for the black guy and not for the two white men when they all escaped at the same time? The reaction was that they began to debate in their law houses 29 years later in direct response they launched the virginia slave codes of 1705 here's what it says quote all servants imported and brought into the country who were not christians in their native country shall be accounted and be slaves all negro mulatto and Indian slaves within this dominion shall be held to be real estate. If any slave resists his master correcting such a slave and shall happen to be killed in such correction, the master shall be free of all punishment if any accident should ever happen. So right off the bat you have a code that says that you're allowed to treat your slave any way you want with impunity. No one can bust you even if you kill them but it went on. The law imposed harsh physical punishments for all sorts of crimes. It stated that slaves needed written permission to leave their plantation. That's where the paperwork comes in. That slaves found guilty of any major offense, the slave would receive 60 lashes, be placed in stocks where his or her ears would be cut off. And for minor offenses, such as associating with whites, slaves are to be whipped, branded, or maimed. Now, Prior to this, all slaves that had a problem with their master could take it to the courts for judgment. After the slave codes, this was no longer the case. Additionally, they put in there an incentive for other white folks to catch any other slaves escaping and you'll get paid if you return them. Now, it is societal pressure to keep everyone under control. In addition, science didn't help. In 1700s, people in the science world around the world began to try to put people into categories. They were sorting out what humanity was like. In 1770, over in Sweden, a man by the name of Carl Linnaeus, the man who first coined the term homo sapien, was sorting it out, and he came up with four types of human beings. White European, red American, brown Asian, later named yellow Asian, and black African. Interestingly enough, I remember seeing the song as a child that Jesus loves all the children of the world. They're red and yellow, black and white. Interesting where that comes from. In the early 1880s, Johann Friedrich Blumenbach in Germany, the father of anthropology, first termed the name Caucasian, named for the Caucasus Mountains. He told everyone, because it was in the book that he read, that the people of the Caucasus Mountains were the most beautiful in the entire world. So he separated people groups and called them races by the size and shape of their skull. He ordered them in terms of beauty, and of course his group was the most beautiful. He came up with five races of people, citing that white was the best, and every other race he was a monogenous, so he believed everyone came from the same race, but all other colors and ethnicities are degenerations. They're all problems. If you cleaned them up, they would ultimately come back to being white. His five categories are Caucasian, and this is important, that is labeled as European, North African, meaning Egyptian, Northern Indian, and Russian. Second group, Ethiopian, the black race, including sub-Saharan Africans. Number three, the red race, or the Americans, including Native Americans. Number four is Asian, which is Mongolian, or the yellow race, including East Asians and Central Asians. And the category of Malayan, which is the brown race, including Southeast Asian and Pacific Islanders. This was the science of the time, which I'm going to get to in a moment, But in the mid-1800s, a man named Samuel Morton, who's the father of American modern physical anthropology, was measuring skulls and was convinced that the bigger the skull, the bigger the brain, the bigger the brain, the smarter you are. Now, we all know that the bigger the body, the bigger the skull, the bigger the brain. But that's all right. He had been convinced that indeed, As a polygenist, he believed two races were created, that God created two races. There was the master race, and there was the sub-race, one to control, one to be controlled, that God created them both at the same time. Because of his work, it lasted all the way through in modern science through the Nazi regime, where the Nazis took it to its ultimate conclusion. By the time he died in 1851, the Charleston Medical Journal wrote while praising his accomplishments, quote, Morton gave the Negro his true position as an inferior race. From the 1940s and the 1960s, the textbooks all told us there was actually three races. We went from five to four to three. In 1960s your textbook told you there were three races that emerged out of evolution. They were caucasoid, mongoloid, and negroid. In the year 2000, the human genome project said all of that is garbage. All human beings are 99.9% identical. Any difference is a surface slight genetic alteration that can be done over time in a relatively short amount of time, that deep down all human beings are exactly the same. But unfortunately, the damage was done. Before we dive into the slavery area, sir, what do you have to say on that?
2: You can hear from what Pastor just shared with us, the reality for many of the people who propagated slavery, was how to dehumanize people. And if they can be dehumanized, then the action, the horrific action of enslaving millions of people in their minds could be justified. If these individuals could not be looked at as human, then in essence, there is what we call cognitive dissidence. If we can remove the dissidence and in essence see them as being animals or primates, not human, then in essence then we can justify our behavior. It's fascinating some of the people that pastors mentioned. There are others, for instance, Jane Madison, one of the Constitution framers, he was the contemporary of Thomas Jefferson, who, by the way, Thomas Jefferson, as you know, coined the term, uh, all people are created, all men, rather, are equal. In essence, what he was saying, all white men are a created equal versus the abolitionist Alexander Hamilton, who fought vehemently against the institution of slavery. It's fascinating to know that Madison, he himself, had slaves, owned slaves, and gave instruction upon his death that those slaves were to be released. They were to be set free. It did not happen. Records show that it did not take place. And it seems to be from all indication, those who have studied his life, that it pointed back to what Pastor shared earlier, economics, follow the money. The economics, it was to, in essence, free the slaves would ruin his family financially. Pastor shared a moment ago, Carl von, von Leneus, considered again to be one of the fathers of anthropology. Listen to the breakdown of how he categorized the, the particulars, the morals and the particulars or the peculiarities of mankind. Listen to these terms. Homo Americaeus, reddish, choleric, speaking of the Native Americans, content, obstinate, regulated by custom. Then the Homo Europaeus white, fickle, blue-eyed, gentle, and governed by laws. Then the homo asiaticus, those are the Asians, sallow, grave, dignified, ruled by opinions. And then the homo Afer, those would be the Africans, African descent, black, Cunning, lazy, lustful, careless, and governed by caprice. The the, the idea here is dehumanize, take away any of the human qualities. Again, cognitive dissonance. And then you can do what you do and not have a soul.
1: So I repeat, Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In that same document, he did many, many drafts of that document, and in some of those drafts, he called slavery, quote, a cruel war against nature itself. This is Thomas Jefferson. He said that it violated the sacred rights of life and liberty. And you would say, oh, so Thomas Jefferson, he gets it. He's the guy that framed that out. As a matter of fact, it is one of the most common phrases that all Americans know that all men are created equal. We know the life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Here's the problem. Jefferson didn't believe all men were created equal. How do we know that? Because five years later, he wrote a book. It's called Notes on the State of Virginia, and he wrote his own thoughts on the African people. The same man who framed our most powerful documents described them as they are ignorant, unable to think ahead, they are inferior in reason, they don't need much sleep, but they can work harder, males are driven by lust, not love, they are void of art, but they are better at music than whites." His conclusion, quote, I advance it that as a suspicion only that the blacks, whether originally a distinct race or made distinct by time and circumstance, are inferior to the whites in the endowments of both body and mind. When asked whether or not he, they should just be integrated, he said, it will probably be asked, why not retain and incorporate the blacks into the state and save the expense of supplying by importation of white settlers the vacancies they will leave. Well, deep rooted prejudice entertained by the whites, 10,000 recollections by the blacks of the injuries they have sustained, new provocations, the real distinctions which nature has made, and many other circumstances will divide us into parties and produce convulsions with which we will probably never end, but in the extermination. Of the one or the other race. So, what did he just say? Should we integrate? No, it's never gonna work. We'll just all kill each other. Ultimately, he said among the Romans, emancipation required but one effort. Quote The slave, when made free, might mix without staining the blood of his master. But with us, a second is necessary. Unknown to history, when freed, he is to be removed beyond the reach of mixture. Don't ever let our blood mix. In 1790, that same Thomas Jefferson launched the national census, the first national census, and he said there was really only five groups of people. Number one was white males over 16. Number two, white males under 16. Number three, white women. Number four, all other free persons. Number five, slaves. For counting purposes, slaves were considered three-fifths of a human being. That is in our Constitution. Now, in 1790 was the Naturalization Act, which defined American people as only white. Congress said only free whites can be citizens. Mixed-race people were automatically called black. At first, if you were one-fourth black, you were black. Later, if you were one-eighth black, you were black. In other words, if you had any mixed blood of any sort, you're black. You can't belong to America. In 1793, Congress passed the Fugitive Slave Act. You can't help slaves escape. There were slave revolts, which led to executions and lynching. There was strengthening of slave codes, limited education, limited movement, the assembly of slaves. And you would hope that entertainment would help because don't we all kind of lean into media when things are hard it was during the same era 1820 to 1880 60 years of minstrel shows the number one parody was making fun of black people degrading them talking about them as less than human when vaudeville theater started in 1880 they kept the same storylines and every single show that went popular was degrading. Since blacks needed jobs, they joined the vaudeville shows and began to lampoon themselves because they had to make a living. You see, in 1850 was the Dred Scott case. The Supreme Court ruled that slaves are not citizens of the U.S., therefore they cannot sue for their freedom. Additionally, they said of African Americans, they are, quote, so far inferior that they had no rights, which the white man was bound to respect. In 1861, the Civil War started, not initially about abolishing slavery, but when so many blacks joined the fight, Abraham Lincoln said, we might as well do this now. And it became a fight for freedom. In 1863, Lincoln led the Emancipation Proclamation, making all slaves in 11 Confederate states free, but not the northern border states four million slaves were affected. In 1865, when the Civil War ended, after four years of heavy fighting, it led to approximately three-fourths of a million military deaths. The Confederate forces surrendered. And in 1865, the 13th Amendment was added, abolishing slavery federally. Reconstruction started, but was immediately crushed. Under President Andrew Johnson, the South enacted the Black Codes, And it was not until after abolishing slavery was the KKK founded. All the problems of lynching began after slavery was done away with officially. The idea of trapping, corralling, beating, murdering, that actually came after slavery. Any thoughts on that era?
2: Again, there's an emphasis how do you afflict such horrendous acts upon people? Of rape, removing children from their parents, separating families, how do you bring about such a mindset to do such a thing? And I might add, people who consider themselves, in most instances, Christians, believers. It is a mindset of whiteness. It is a mindset that if it is not white, it's not right. And so it carries itself out through the institution of slavery and even into the time period that we will speak of being recorded as reconstruction, in which you see the emergence of Jim Crow laws and so forth. What's fascinating, not long ago, just a few months ago, I was sitting in the office with Pastor Brian and Pastor Lance. I think Miss Heidi was with us as well. We were having our SLT meeting. It was June 19th, and I said, we are celebrating June 19th. And they said, what is June 19th? I said, that is a period of time in which many African Americans set to celebrate the news that we had been set free from slavery. But what is often overlooked is that news got out that the slaves had been set free, but not everybody heard the news. And there were entire regions of multitudes of slaves that stayed in captivity mm-hmm. under the institution of slavery some two years in addition to, hearing the, uh, to the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation. In fact, it was the Union General Gordon Granger who landed at uh, Galveston, Texas with the news that the Civil War had ended and that blacks were now free prior to this the Union military presence stated that they lacked the ability to enforce the Emancipation Proclamation. So there were people who still stayed in captivity during that period of time. So contrary to popular opinion, President Abraham Lincoln did not really, quote unquote, set the slaves free. For you see, it was not in his mind to set black folks free. It was a negotiation tool relative to the war, and to be quite honest, the economics. Again, follow the money. That was not really his biggest concern but setting black folks free. He signed the Emancipation Proclamation, but there would be years In years and I submit to you even to this day where there are things that have to take place to fight for the rights of black people
1: we don't have obviously time to be able to go through the all the situation within the slavery era so if we're gonna jump into the issue of Jim Crow this is where you start seeing segregation you start seeing separate everything yes We will no longer cage you, however, we will make your life very difficult, and we want you to be nowhere near us. That's kind of the goal. Do you realize that 1952, anybody remember 1952? It wasn't that long ago. 1952 was the first year out of 71 years of keeping track that no official lynchings occurred. Now, we're not talking about accidental lynchings. We're not talking about behind-the-barn things. We're talking about official, recorded. 1952, first year that no lynchings occurred. So in 1896 to 1954 was the Jim Crow law era. Lynching was commonly used. Between 1886 and 1900, more than 2,500 lynchings occurred. In the first year of 1900, more than 100 black people were lynched that year. By World War I, 1914, an additional 1,100 were lynched. These are all post-slavery. Segregation laws continued to control freed blacks, separate schools, separate trains, separate depots, separate hotels, separate theaters, separate restaurants, separate barbershops. In 1906, the Naturalization Act was passed, established by Congress. All immigrants that want to come to America have to argue for citizenship before a federal court. The rule was this, you have to be white and you have to speak English. No one else is allowed to become a citizen of the United States. Now, blacks that were born here were given the right, but you can't come and join us if you're any other minority. Now, two individual court cases were very telling. Number one, an Indian man named Bhagat Singh Thin from India, moves to America, doesn't become a citizen yet, goes to grad school at Berkeley, joins the U.S. Army, Ends up fighting in World War I, applies for citizenship in 1918. He was granted citizenship and revoked four days later. Why? Because he wasn't white enough. His skin was too dark, so it goes to the Supreme Court. While they're waiting, Takeo Ozawa, goes to court to argue his citizenship, a Japanese man. He's been in the U.S. his entire adult life. He was English-speaking. He said, I will deny everything about me that is Japanese. I will deny my language. I will deny my government. I will deny any heritage and any history and any culture. I will do anything required. And he began to argue, look at my skin. I'm white, because he was very pale. The U.S. Supreme Court says, nope you are denied citizenship because you're not Caucasian. You're white-looking, but you are not technically Caucasian. Well, during this time, the Indian man saw what happened in the Supreme Court, so he shifted his argument. He said, all right, you guys, I get what you're trying to say. Let me play your game, right? Here's the deal. I get it. I'm darker, but you know what? Here's the funny thing. I'm Caucasian. They're like, what do you mean you're Caucasian? He's like, my ancestors are from the Caucasus Mountains. I am Northern India. I am by definition of your science, Caucasian. And then he said something very sad. He said, in my country, where I come from, we have a caste system. I am upper caste. I am high. I look down on all my other Indian brothers and sisters in other castes, just like you do the Negro. So I should be allowed to be elite just like you. They denied him, why? Because his skin was too dark. So they denied the first guy whose skin was white because he wasn't Caucasian, so the next guy said, I'm Caucasian, and they denied him because he wasn't white enough. Same era, same Supreme Court, what was the point? You're white if we say you're white. No one else need apply. If you remember in media, in the early films, 1903, the first full-length feature film was what? Uncle Tom's Cabin, 12 Minutes. Unfortunately, it was followed in 1915 by Birth of a Nation. Our own president of the United States sat in a special screening of Birth of a Nation, which was a KKK propaganda film, and said it was the best thing he had ever seen. Hmm. Radio was the main form of entertainment and they needed to have voices. So they enhanced the ignorance and sound of the black characters. Early TV shows were shown blacks as uneducated and stupid. In 1935, outside of the Great Depression, they needed to do something about the housing market. So they had developed a place called the FHA, the Federal Housing Association. They decided then to do what? They wanted to pour money in and help rebuild neighborhoods. So they made a color-coded map. You heard this? The color-coded map was in areas that are good for investing money and bad. They colored the bad ones red, the good ones green, and they had a couple colors in between. Ironically enough, all the red zones were minorities. They said, quote, Colored infiltration is definitely an adverse influence on neighborhood desirability. In their manual of underwriting, it says, quote, incompatible racial groups should not be permitted to live in the same communities. And what happened? They ended up not funding any of it, letting all the neighborhoods collapse. They were not allowed to make repairs and all those areas collapsed. In 1968, the Civil Rights Act banned the official redlining, but the damage was done. It wasn't until 1977 that those people were held accountable. In the 80s, they found it again. It was finally stopped in 1988. An article in the Washington Post in 2018 showed a re examination of redline areas that three out of every four neighborhoods redlined are still currently struggling economically. 91% of those marked green are still middle to upper class, and 85% of all green areas are white. This is why we can't just move on. You see, it's all still happening.
2: Whatever progress may have been made through reconstruction, the period of reconstruction, was seemingly dismantled through the Jim Crow laws, which although were in effect in the South, it did not suggest that those African-Americans, blacks that were migrating into the North were not impacted by discrimination. They were in some instances, on the same level of Jim Crow laws. During Reconstruction, blacks took on leadership roles like never before. They held public office, sought legislative changes for equality and the right to vote. My ancestors, the Gullah, the Geechee, who migrated into the uh, Seacoast Islands off the coast of South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida, began to own land. They were some of the first to have rights to the property. And still, many whites, especially those in the South, were unhappy that people they'd once enslaved were now more or less on an equal playing field. To marginalize blacks, to keep them separate from whites, and to erase the progress that had been made during Reconstruction, these Jim Crow laws were established in the South, beginning in the 19th century blacks couldn't use the same public facilities as whites live in many of the same towns or go to the same schools interracial marriage was illegal and most blacks couldn't vote because they were unable to pass the voter literacy tests Jim Crow laws were adopted in uh, uh, the, the northern states however on a much a simpler basis. They were not as overt and presented as, were, as I stated within the South. Moreover, Southern segregation gained ground in 1896 when the U.S. Supreme Court declared in Plessy v. Ferguson that facilities for blacks and whites could be separate but equal. World War II moved us into an era in which most blacks were of low-wage farmers, factory workers, domestic help or servants. By the early 1940s, war-related work was booming, but most blacks weren't given the better-paying jobs. They were also discouraged from joining the military. After thousands of blacks threatened to march on Washington to demand equal employment rights, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt issued Executive Order 8802 on June 25, 1941, it opened national defense jobs and other government jobs in all, to all Americans regardless of their race, their creed, their color, or their national origin. Black men and women served heroically in World War II despite suffering segregation and discrimination during their deployment, yet many met with prejudice and scorn upon returning home. This was a stark contrast to why America had entered the war to begin with, to defend freedom and democracy for the world. This would lead to the presentation of what is known as the Civil Rights Movement. And it is the Civil Rights Movement that served as a catalyst for the struggle of social justice as presented in our nation.
1: I mean, we gotta get real close to where we are now. We're gonna wrap this thing up, but real close. In 1968, MLK was assassinated. You have to remember how close this was to what is today. Civil Rights Bill was in 1964. Watts riots were in 1965. MLK assassinated in 68. Civil Rights Act was finally affirmed in 68. And in 1969, the Supreme Court ruled that racial segregation in schools had to end, unfortunately, 15 years after Brown and the Board of Education, but it had to be demanded again in 1971. They were still segregating schools in 1971. I was born in 1971. So, if we're going to talk about segregation, that's my lifetime. If you continue to follow it, and we don't have time to do all that, what I want to do is kind of close out with some Some thoughts about what it all means. You would go, uh, pastors, I hear you. That is super sad. But here's the deal. If we're going to heal an ethnically wounded nation, do you all understand why we called it ethnically wounded? It's not racially wounded. Why? There's no such thing as race. That's a made-up thing. But if we're to heal an ethnically wounded nation, you have to know why There's hurting. You have to understand the wounding. My main goal for this first evening was to demonstrate America's attitude historically towards the African-American population. I mean, if we're talking about the first slaves arriving here in early 1600s, but we haven't really had any advancement until the civil rights era, of the 1960s that's a really short amount of time to try to pick up steam and even then we've had some challenges i want to go back to where pastor parnell first started and that's the idea of generational trauma i think all of us can relate to the fact that our families have histories of difficulties Oh, it's interesting how alcoholism goes to the same family. Oh, it's interesting how abuse goes to the same family. Oh, it's interesting how this. What happens when you enslave generation after generation after generation? What are the ramifications for generations moving forward? I'll tell you at least there's hurt, there's sensitivity, there's pain. I think that it is the church's job And i'm going to call out and say that i don't think it is appropriate or fair that if ultimately the white caucasian community has done a lot of the hurting that we don't do the helping i think it's unfair to say well you're right it's broken you fix it i think that we still currently have all the power we still have all the voting rights We still have the population numbers. We still have all the money. We still have all the influence. We still have all the jobs. We still have an authority. So the onus is on us as white Christians in America to be able to step in and say, how might we help? This series is going to take us from history into practicality into Christianity, into transformation. I hope that you're able to stick with us and join us through the entire series because it only makes sense once you wrap around the other side. But I want to say this, and I want to hear your heart on this, Pastor. Our national message to the African-American population from the American government and people groups is you are not like us and we don't want you around us. It was not just sentiment of a person, it was written into law. That has an impact. I think all of us struggle with identity. I think all of us struggle to feel wanted. I think all of us struggle to say, do I matter? But only a few of us in this room have ever had a dominant group tell us, no, you do not. What does that do to the hearts of the people that we love so desperately? We're going to talk about how to begin to turn that around. But wow, the hurt is real. Pastor?
2: I'm just glad that we're tackling the hard stuff. (laughs) Because we can talk about all of the little platitudes and the things that we say and have a good kumbaya session. Or we can get down to the real heart of the matter. You see, as pastor shared, I did, and I didn't allude to it, I stated it, I'm still traumatized. My son is traumatized. My wife is traumatized. There are certain cues, certain words, certain things that are said and done, even in the church, that remind me of the pain. I know what people are saying and we say and we're not wanting to be political, but I can't handle the term make America great again because it's never been great for me. There's no connection to that. There's no connection to a great America for me. For my house. But I believe with these types of conversations. And a heart that's open. To the spirit of the Lord. The Holy Spirit. He will bring healing and hope to us. And as for me. And this house. And those we impact. We will serve the Lord.
1: We're about to step off and have one of our guest speakers come up and share uh, a kind of a 10-minute talk for you. Um, But I do want to make it real practical on something because pastor just brought it up. When we say certain things, we are not aware of all the ramifications and implications. In this church, I have said this phrase. Man, you know what my favorite era is? Anybody remember this? I say it. I said it a lot. My favorite era is the 50s. I love the 50s. You know why? Because I love the style. I love the music. I love the bunch of things that it stood for. You know what I didn't remember? was 1952 was the first year that there was no lynchings. You see, to me, I look backwards, and I can talk about golden times. But that's because I'm white and I'm male. I can look backwards and I can hearken back with joy. But for a large group of people, going backwards anywhere is very scary. And it triggers something. And it's hard to always say in your mind, oh, but I know what they meant. Because sometimes it just hurts. The same thing happened when Black Lives Matter came out and they said, after hundreds of years of the slaughter of black people, we need to say as a nation that black lives matter. And what was our response? All lives matter. You missed it. That was a cry for help and a cry of pain. And you put it into a debate and said, oh, everybody matters. No one ever argued that white people don't matter. Laws were never made to say that we don't matter, that white people don't matter, but laws were put in place that say black people don't matter. So when you hear popular phrases being said, please look a little bit deeper as to what is intended without having an automatic response of, oh, you're coming at me like that, I didn't do anything. We don't need to be defensive, we need to be helpful and we need to be offensive. Because I'm going to tell you this. I didn't need the Human Genome Project to tell me that we're all in this boat together. I didn't need anyone other than my Jesus Christ to tell me that everybody matters. Here's my goal. I would love to make America what we wish America was. I would love to help make America everything that we're holding in our minds as a dream, I want all men to be created equal. I want all the stuff we say out loud to just be true. I think that America has amazing ideals. I think we're in the most wonderful country in the entire world. I just would love for us to actually live what we say. We are now going to transition and we would love to have you welcome up a very special guest, a gentleman that knows history far better than I do, a guest to us, Mr. Larry Lee. Would you welcome him up?
3: All right. Boy, that was deep. (laughs) Um, My name is Larry Lee. Uh, I am um, very happy to be invited here this evening. Humbled, uh, to be honest. Uh, This is, uh, I want to really tip my hat off to uh, Pastor Lance and Bishop Lovelace uh, for inviting me here and for putting this on. Uh, And you all need to be commended and congratulated as well, too. I think that um, anytime that we're talking about um, really healing an ethnically uh, challenged community and, and nation, um, we really—it's it's incumbent upon this kind of conversation to happen outside of our normal community. Uh, I was speaking with uh, the other speaker who'll be speaking uh, later, uh, Pastor Damien, and, and you know, oftentimes this kind of conversation happens amongst African Americans. We're trying to figure out how do we find ways to um, get this country to live up to what it's promises to be. You heard a lot tonight so far about, um, you know, kind of uh, what, the, the, what this country was founded on and, um, and then how it was built and how in some instances those are two totally different things. And I think oftentimes when we have the conversation among ourselves, we're trying to say, you know, what can we do as a community to help um, save our community and save this country? Um, And and oftentimes what's missing in that conversation is those outside of our community. So, you know, kudos to this Bridgeway Church and, and you all, uh, as a church family, to come together to discuss this, in a subject with a subject matter that's relatively uncomfortable. Uh, you know, we've been talking for decades. I'm, I'm, I am 45, um, so I'm a little younger, but uh, old enough to know that, um, you know, for over a century. Uh, one of the things that has, been, that has plagued this country, uh, W. B. Du Bois said it, that uh, the, the challenge for the 20th century for this country is uh, the racial line. Um, I remember President Clinton um, initiated an effort uh, with John Hope Franklin to have a discussion about race uh, in this country. We th- I think that if you listen to the history that we've talked, about that was outlined before you so eloquently, um, about the history and challenges of this country, what we see is that coming out of slavery, going through Jim Crow, going through segregation, that what this country really never had was kind of an open session of therapy. Um, I am no sociologist. I'm no psychologist. Uh, I'm a humble uh, second-generation newspaper publisher, but I know that um, you know one of the challenges that we've had is that we can't find a way to have this communication with each other. So I'm, again, thankful for being invited, and I think it's tremendous that your church is doing this. Uh, In context of who I am and what I do, uh, as I mentioned, uh, I am what's called a second-generation newspaper publisher of the Sacramento Observer newspaper. Um, If you have heard of the Sacramento Observer, raise your hand. If you haven't, that's fine. Um, We are uh, this region's African-American newspaper of record. We've been publishing since November of 1962. Uh, We focus primarily on the African-American community. So each and every week, and we're a weekly newspaper in the era of challenged newspaper industry, uh, every week we publish stories that focus on uh, the totality of our community uh, through the lens of what's called the black press. In the historical context, what is the black press? So again, you heard a lot about you know what was going on, particularly at the turn uh, of the um, 18, beginning of the 1800s, 1900s, etc. Uh, the Black press was initially founded in uh, February I mean in March of uh, 1827 by Samuel Cornish and John Rushworm. Uh, they were two uh, religious leaders who felt. Uh, and, and had a credo that no one else would speak for us. As you heard eloquently, the, the challenges of African Americans in this country uh, has been going on for a very long time and not having a way in order to speak up for us as a community um, what has been challenging, and the black press, Freedom's Journal, was started in, in 1827. Uh, we like to say it was the first black business uh, in this nation, um, being able to produce a publication that spoke up for us. The Observer was founded very much similarly, obviously, much later in uh, 1962. Uh, there were three founders of the Observer. Uh, Geno Gladden, who has since passed away, John Cole, who is at the ripe and and mobile age of 100 years old, and my father, Dr. William Lee, uh, who's 82 years old. Um, The three of them started The Observer um, with the idea very similarly, as I said, to that no one else would speak for us. If you think about Sacramento uh, in the early 60s, there was no presence of African Americans in mainstream media in any way, shape, or form. Uh, they didn't know, no one knew about our births, no one knew about our deaths, about our promotions, our jobs, uh, our health concerns, nothing. Um, and in fact, it, the, the story goes that um, someone in, in the founding group tried to get a story, I think, to the Sacramento Union or the Sacramento Bee. Neither one wanted to publish it, so they said, well, the heck with you guys, we'll just start our own newspaper um and uh so in that context uh you know you you think about the african-american experience in sacramento we like to say sacramento uh, has grown and the observer has grown with it Uh, during that time there was about 20,000 african-americans in the in the early 60s Uh, interestingly sacramento is one of the few communities uh in this nation that has had uh, a constant growth we it's not a It's not a chocolate, what we call a chocolate city, like a Detroit, a Chicago, and Washington, DC. But uh, Sacramento has had, and is the only city in the state of California that has had consistent African American population growth over the last 40 years. So right now, Sacramento has a population of about 150,000 African Americans. That's larger than the city of Roseville, um, than the entire city of Roseville. So uh, we have grown with that. and you know there's there's a lot of things that that you get uh confused by mainstream media they'll tell you that there are a lot of disparities in our community and there are but there are some tremendous uh growths and and areas where african-americans have uh, in spite of the obstacles of uh, institutionalized racism have have had some growth um you know areas uh, like, you know, there's about 40, the, the, the media, mainstream media will tell you that we don't go to college. About 40% of our community has gone to college. Um, you know, there in Sacramento, there's about uh, almost $8 billion African American buying power in Sacramento. Uh, what does that come from? That comes from, you know, what has, what has grown into a strong middle class uh, community that uh, has had you know, employment with state, employment with the city, other job and uh, opportunities. And so there have been some, some great opportunities for African Americans uh, in Sacramento. There are and have been and continue to be some pretty alarming um, disparities as well, too. Uh, of course, um, if you are born in the wrong zip code in Sacramento, uh, your life expend- expect- expectancy can be cut short as much as 20 years as, white, uh, as your white counterparts. So in other words, if you're born in, you know, let's say, a community like Del Paso Heights uh, as an African-American man, your life expectancy might only be to about 68 years. Um, so that's obviously a tremendous uh, challenge. The recent, there was a recent report that just came out about um, African-American boys being suspended. Uh, in, in Sacramento, there's about 45 schools in the Sac- greater Sacramento area that have 30% African-American suspension rates. 30% African-American suspension rates or greater. So in other words, uh, these, the things that uh, Pastor Lance and Bishop Lovelace were talking about, that lens of looking at this African-American boy and, and that experience that he is living with Um, might, uh, if if you have a white teacher that talks to that student, they might not respond to them the same way. And the next thing you know, that child is suspended and sent down a track uh, of suspensions, um, which also bring in law enforcement and and a number of other things. Um, African American wealth in our region uh, is challenged. It's really challenged nationally. as well, too, um, the African-American household wealth is only $7,000. So when you're talking about uh, a family of three, four, five, their entire family wealth is only about $7,000, compared to white wealth is about $120,000 on average. It's Roseville, so some of you may have more than $120,000, <laughs> but, um, but it, is, it is pretty tremendous, uh, that gap. Um, I think, and my time is not going to be long, so, uh, but I think when, when we're talking about uh, you know, these disparities and, and the challenges that we have, You know, we again are talking about institutional racism. We've been fortunate; we've had some individuals who have done some tremendous things in Sacramento, uh, for not just the region but uh, the nation as well, too. Of course, Sacramento uh, just recently uh, had uh, Mayor Kevin Johnson was the first African American mayor in the city's history. Um, There had been other African Americans who had been elected to other uh, positions, such as the County Board of Supervisors, but in the entire history of the Sacramento County, there's only been one African American, uh, Grantland Johnson, ever elected to the Sacramento County Board of Supervisors, which in reality is the, you know, the governing uh, body that really serves this region. Um, so there's, there's been, we've had some individual successes, but I think, uh, as we'll, we'll discuss more, um, you know, that uh, an individual really cannot change systemic racism uh, and and really close the gap. There are some things that, that people are trying to do uh, in our region. Uh, currently, right now, there is uh, what's called the Black Child Legacy Campaign, which is really trying to address uh, the disparities I spoke of uh, earlier about um, the life expectancy of black children in the region. And the county uh, did an admirable job of stepping up financially to try and help fund organizations that are community-based to address that. But again, we're talking about um, generations of systemic racism and uh, challenges. So uh, I think that uh, in the context of the Observer newspaper and what we do, uh, we are really just trying to shed light educate and inspire uh, our community, and not just our community, but those outside of our community. We have about 20% of our readership is non-African American. Um, you know, obviously in this era of digital media and digital age, uh, you know, you get a lot of people outside of our community who get a wind of different stories that we produce. Um, and it is it's it is a blessing. Uh, we're, we're thankful. We know that uh, what we do is a labor of love, uh, and we feel like we're called to do it. Uh, so we're excited about it, uh, even though that the uh, the gaps are what they are and the challenges are what they are. But I think that uh, as we continue to, to push that, the, the chal- challenge is and the discussion is, you know, is there still a need for what we call the black press? Is there a need for the black newspapers in this country? And uh, we say, you know, emphatically, yes, because um, so many times the story might sound one way, and as Bishop Lovelace or others, uh, Pastor Lance mentioned, you know, some of these things we hear, um, you know, they, they mean different things to us. You know, when you hear states' rights, we get concerned about what that really means because we know the federal government is, the, is uh, really needs to have accountability for what goes on in this country. And so we get, get worried about different things. So there are different things that, that we hear that we try to shed light and, and educate not only our community, but... Uh, the community at large. With that, again, I will thank you all for your time. Uh, thank you for your your openness uh, to having this discussion, um, and I'm very thankful to be here. God bless you all.
4: Hey guys, how you doing? Yeah, you guys have been kind of quiet. Must be a difficult topic or something. <laughs> uh. So, I'm really honored to be here with you tonight, and this night for me is somewhat historic. I don't think that I've ever been in an environment like this where we're tackling a topic with such honesty. I'm gonna be honest with you, and so I'd like to say thank you for the invitation. Uh, and I also wanna warn you that everything intelligent that has been said, uh, that will be said, has already been said by the gentleman that came before me. I'm just a cleanup crew. Um, so, first of all, I wanna tell you that I probably am not the best person to be chosen to share any testimony on this topic. And the reason why is because I'm actually not African-American. I was born in Toronto, and I was raised in Barbados. In Barbados, there was this song, and the song says, 95% black and 5% white, ooh yay, with a a reggae beat behind. It it was actually a good song. And that song actually described the makeup of my country. The country where I was born was 95% black, five percent white. I never had a white doctor. I never had a white dentist. I never had a white president. So for us, having a white president would be like, wow, stuff is happening here. My father was a contractor. He was a very respected man, and he owned a very successful contracting business in Barbados. I went to the second highest rated high school in the land. And so My entire childhood, I knew I was a king. I saw myself as a prince. And I thought that every single person who saw me thought the same. And then I moved to the United States of America. (laughs) And I went to school in a state called Alabama. (laughs) Lord have mercy. (laughs) At least I went to HBCU, a historically black university in Alabama, and I was walking through, uh, when I first came, uh, Bishop Parnell, I could never understand the African-American mindset, because it was not my mindset. My mindset was that I was a king, I was born a king, I am royalty, and everybody sees me that way. So when, when incidents would be shared with me, even by my friends, I would be the guy who was sitting at the table like, but there's another way to see that. She did not mean it that way. Until I walked into a department store called Parisians, and I was in the shoe section. I walked into the shoe section, and it, the store was about to close, and I was still looking. I was wearing a hoodie and would never think that I shouldn't wear a hoodie in a department store. I was shopping. Then I heard over the intercom, customer in need of help in the shoe section. And so I looked around. And there were no customers in the shoe section other than me. Then I locked eyes with the cashier and realized that she was clearing the till. And finally got it. She didn't see me as a king or a prince, she saw me as a criminal. And she needed someone to come into the section to make sure I didn't do what I would naturally do as a black man with a hoodie, and rob her of that money. I was 19. It was the first time in my life, in my entire life, that I knew that everybody didn't see me the way I saw myself and so now I'm moving from a Caribbean black guy who was a prince to someone who had to fight to tell people that I was a prince and a king. Let's fast forward. I went through many incidents that were similar to those. I went to a church event and this white lady walked up to me and she says, welcome, you must be a guest. And I said, "Ah, yeah, this is my first time here, but I'm not a guest. I'm actually a pastor. She looked at me in the face and she said, you must be a pastor of one of those black churches. She walked off and left me there. Fast forward a little bit further. Now I'm a father. My son was born in this country. And my son never had the privilege that I have of growing up in a country with 95% black and 5% white. By the time I leave, you're going to know that song. (laughs) And my son was sitting in the back seat of our car. We were on our way to Manteca because my son is the most amazing soccer player you will ever meet. Very intelligent young man. We were pulled over because Daddy was doing 75 and a 70, and I probably shouldn't have got pulled over. I was probably doing more like 80 anyways. When the cop pulled me over, I saw my son in the backseat freeze. And he said to me, he said, Daddy, are you going to make it home alive? My son is seven years old. And in that moment, I realized that my son was born with a mentality that mine wasn't. My son wasn't born into an environment where he feels like a king or a prince. My son was born into an environment where he has to prove every single day that he is not a criminal. I went to his teacher's thing that they had, you know, parents meet the teachers. My son is one uh, I, I walked in, and the teacher walked up to me. She greeted me, and she quickly moved on to my son's behavior. If you've ever met my son, my son is the most gentle boy that you'll ever meet. She told me, uh, she looked at him while I was standing right next to him. She says, Salem, or have you been behaving yourself? And Salem said, I, I, I have. Really, Salem? Are, have you been re- behaving yourself? Are, are you going to tell your parents what you do? And Salem said, No, I, I think I've been behaving myself. Have I not been behaving myself? She said, Salem, is it, isn't it true that you talk to so and so every single day in the class? And I stepped in front of my son. And I told her, You're not going to talk to my son that way, especially when my son is one letter grade away from being a straight A student. He's not your thug. Members of my church, one of my kids in my church is a straight A student. He's never gotten anything less than an A at any point in his life. He's 14. His parents go to a a meeting at the school. The teacher meets him at the door. And listen to what the teacher says. Oh, this guy is an amazing basketball player. He's really going to do something. He should go professional. And I thought to myself, if he was a white kid, would you have said that he should be a surgeon or a neurosurgeon or a heart surgeon or a lawyer? I mean, this kid has never gotten anything less than an A. But he's a basketball player. (sighs) Moving forward. So now as a parent, Forced to remind my son that he's not a criminal. I have to find ways to surround him with people that will remind him that he is not a criminal. I have to defend him from people's thoughts of him being a criminal. And my son is seven. These are the roads that I have to walk and the conversations that I have to have as a parent. And really and truly, I wish I never had to have this conversation with my son. The Caribbean was not free of slavery. We had our own stuff going on. And oh, before I go to that spot, I want to tell you about two more stories, and then I'm going to wrap up, because I'm sure. You see, I, I, my church is a mostly black church, and when I get up to preach, they all know I'm going to preach for an hour and a half. This is not that place, so I'm just going to honor the priest of the house. Um, two more stories that have impacted me here recently um, of my members. I have two members. They are the most lovingest. They're, they're the grandparents, everybody's grandparents. And uh, the, f- the husband is about 87, the wife is about 86, and she is, um, she is in a wheelchair. She's paralyzed from the waist down. They went on a trip not too long ago, maybe about two years ago. And on this trip, they get pulled over by a cop. And the cop doesn't come on the driver's side, he comes on the passenger side, where the lady who can't walk is sitting in the passenger seat. She's startled because she's expecting him on the driver's side, and she's 87 years old. The cop, after she rolls down the window, sees her jump and says to her, what? Are you going to take out a gun and shoot me? I'm a pastor. I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. But that's my member's mother. She can't walk. Why in the name of Jesus would that be the first thing? That you say. I finish with this. These chairs are about 10 feet apart, and they're about four feet from the edge of the stage. It's very, very significant for me because I had an opportunity to go back to the Caribbean. On a visit, I went to the island of St. Thomas. And right off of St. Thomas, there is this island called St. John's. There's a tour on St. John's of a slave plantation. And I had never had a chance to go to a slave plantation, so I took the tour. You sit in the bus, and it climbs up this hill, and the guy's talking, blah, blah, blah. A lot of mosquitoes, so make sure you bring some off spray and (laughs) spray it all over yourself. We get up to the top. We get to the slave plantation. He walks us around. He shows us the cabins. I'm the only, my Myself and my wife are the only black people on this tour of a slave plantation. The other people with us are just walking ahead like they're in Disney World. La, 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 slave plantation. How exciting. And all of a sudden, something just hits me. I am walking on streets where my forefathers bled died. And it just just grabs me, like it happened yesterday. Part of the tour, they walk you into this space. It's about 10 by 4. And they explain to you that this is the holding cell where they put slaves that didn't behave. And so in this space, that's about 10 by 4, they explained that they would put 20 to 30 slaves in that space. The other people on the tour walked in, and they were like, la, 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 this is a holding cell for 20 to 30 people. Let me stand in here and take a selfie. And they left. And I stood in there. When the guy said this final thing, I broke down." He said, you see this? There was a drawing on the back of the cell. And it was a drawing of a castle. And he said, it is believed that the drawing was drawn by a slave who was in that holding cell, who happened to be a prince, stolen from Africa. And while he was in that cell, he drew a picture of home. A home that he would never see again. He was born a king. And he died a slave. My son will know his history. And even though the environment in which he was born calls him a criminal, he will die a king because I won't let him die a criminal. The final story of St. John is that the slaves revolted because they were born kings. And the Dutch came to St. John's and brutally murdered half of the slaves. The most, rebellion one, most rebellious ones climbed a hill that is now called Suicide Hill, and they jumped off the cliff because they refuse to die as slaves. I refuse to let my son die, think, or live thinking that he's a criminal. Because my son, Salem Chandler, is a king. And I will make sure that he knows that. God bless you.